Good evening, this is Doug Taylor. Welcome to the Noahide Nations class on Proverbs, class number 18. Uh, great to have you here. And we are starting tonight with Proverbs chapter 11, verse 11. So Proverbs chapter 11, verse 11. And the verse reads like this. By the blessings of the upright, or yosher in Hebrew, a city is exalted, but by the mouth of the wicked it is overthrown. By the blessings of the upright, a city is exalted, but by the mouth of the wicked it is overthrown. So, as I seem to traditionally do here at the beginning, let me ask, what are the questions? What questions come to your mind as you look at that verse? By the blessings of the upright, <clears throat> a city is exalted, but by the mouth of the wicked it is overthrown. Pause for a minute, because Naomi, it looks like you're typing something. Okay, very interesting. Both things are done by the mouth, blessing and a curse. Okay, good. Here are a couple of questions that came to mind. When it says, by the blessings of the upright, what are those? What are the blessings of the yosher or the upright? And how is it that a city is exalted by them? And what exactly does that mean? And how is a city overthrown by the mouth of the wicked? I mean, yeah, there are wicked people around, they do wicked things, but how come a city is overthrown by them? Okay. And Pamela, you've, you've uh, suggested prosperity uh, as a blessing of the upright. Okay, good. And uh, Naomi, you said torn down uh, is the way yours is done, overthrown or torn down. Okay, I think both of those would, would work. Uh, and sedition, yeah, could be. Pamela, we'll, we'll see, I think, as we get into it a little bit. Uh, let me remind you from our work last week that the Yosher in the book of Proverbs is a person who's a clear thinker. Uh, has a very straightforward approach to things and a person who loves learning. So, <clears throat> in going over this, and again, the ideas I'm going to share with you are from uh, uh, my mentor, Rabbi Moskowitz, uh, and he based his uh, exposition on which I've based uh, this work tonight on the Rabbeinu Yonah. And the Rabbeinu Yonah says that when the yosher, that's this upright person, is successful with wealth and honor, then the city is raised, or goes up or is benefited. Because the yosher draws the hearts of people with their wisdom. That is, not the people's wisdom, but his own wisdom. And advises them with counsel and advice and knowledge. Because the yoshirim, those Yosher folks, the upright, are intelligent and they have good minds and they're straight in their thinking and they have success with wealth and honor and therefore their words, uh, as a result of that, their words are listened to. So that's the way he talks about the first part of the verse. The second part of the verse, he indicates that the mouth of the wicked is destroyed with gossip. In other words, it instigates and he causes quarrels and strifes. And he strengthens falseness while he's alive, and he brings down the truth. So that is one explanation of the verse. Now the Rabbeinu Yonah, interestingly, gives two explanations. Um, and Pamela, you've commented a city could be torn down when the justice system is compromised. Yes, uh, I would agree. And it could be 
that the mouth of the wicked does that through uh, the instigation of quarrels and strifes and falsehoods uh, that he instigates. So, good point. The Rabbeinu Yonah's second explanation is that it's possible to explain that the blessing of the Yosher, the upright, means that their prayers and blessings are accepted by God, and the mouth of the wicked destroys. So the righteous raise up blessings with their mouth, and the wicked, with their mouth, they destroy stuff. So we've got two explanations by the Rabbeinu Yonah that we want to dig into a little bit here. So let's start with the first one. He's saying that by blessings, the Yosher is blessed with success because his success with wealth and honor will bring people to listen to what he has to say. By contrast, the mouth of the wicked will destroy the city because they're only interested in gossiping and inciting strife and putting people down and destroying them and basically causing destruction. They're not interested in building up stuff. They're interested in destroying it. Now, by blessed, he means, or by blessed, he means successful. So the Rabbeinu Yonah is saying here clearly that the Yosher, the upright, is successful in wealth and honor. And so people will listen to him because he has prominence. People don't necessarily accept the ideas, but they respect success. And so if the Yosher, the upright, has wealth and honor, that will benefit the city because the people will listen to him. So now we can understand here that what the, the righteous person talks about and advises is the opposite of what the wicked person says. So when we start thinking about, you know, comparisons in the verses, you know, usually the verse compares one thing with another, the righteous with the wicked or the good with the evil or uh, the wise man with the fool or something like that. Um, so that could be a comparison. But the subject in the first half seems to be the blessings of the Yosher, wealth and prominence. The second half refers to the advice of the wicked directly. In other words, the first half is suggesting that something outside of the advice of the Yosher, the blessing, is causing the people to listen to him. But the second half, when it talks about the wicked, seems to be talking about the advice directly. So... We've got to ask ourselves, well, what's the comparison between the first half and the second half? Now, we can understand that what the Rubena Yonah is saying uh, about people, we can understand that, but there seems to be a logical problem with what the Rubena Yonah is saying, because most every verse, as we mentioned, is a comparison between the righteous and the wicked, or the fool and the wise. And so, the question would be, well, what does wealth and honor, talked about in the first half, have to do with what the wicked is saying? I mean, the first half seems to emphasize that the blessing of the Yosher causes the city to be raised. Now, the Rebbeinu Yonah says that if he's blessed with wealth, then they'll listen to him. So, he gains wealth and honor, and then people will listen. So, how is that the opposite of the quality of the wicked where he incites quarrels and destructiveness. So, if the essence of the verse is was what the righteous or the upright says and what the wicked says, then I would understand that we have one subject. But the essence of the first half of the verse seems to be emphasizing that they recognize his success because of things they hold that are important specifically wealth and honor, not in his essence, not in what he really has to offer. But they accept what he has to offer because of his wealth and honor. That's what it seems to be saying. So what does that have to do with the essence of the wicked, the idea that they just want to start quarrels and cause strife in the community? So... If we say that the subject 
is the comparison of the righteous person and the wicked, then we've got a problem. But if we wanted to say the comparison is about what causes the public to listen to them, then it works out well. See, by its nature, the public wants to listen to a person who allows them to vent their base emotions. The closer they can allow their base emotions out, they will turn to that person who allows them, you know, the freedom in, in their desires. But the advice of the upright runs contrary to their desires. So they aren't going to want to listen to him. And we see that in... Okay, sorry for that interruption. Technical problems. Uh, Pamela, you've mentioned the wicked go for the pillars on which a culture stands for, such as education, law, family, and religion. Uh, they certainly do, I think, in a number of circumstances. Uh, and Naomi, Naomi, you're quite right. People do like false promises. Uh, and we see that in the public arena, you know, I think fairly frequently, that people uh, make promises and uh, in order to get into certain positions and may not be able to follow uh, through. Um, and Pamela, you've said, is it that what we do personally has wider implications? Uh, not sure how much you mean by wider, but I think we'll see as we go along uh, a little farther here what's happening um, with the, uh, the upright and uh, the wicked. So let me, let me pick up here that um, generally speaking, if an upright person steps up and is speaking to the public against their desires, they aren't necessarily going to listen to him. But the people do respect prominence. And prominence in society is closely connected to wealth and honor. So if the yosher, the upright, has wealth and honor and fame, so then he has the ability, or she, has the ability, the potential to counteract what the wicked has said. Uh, and the yosher then has an opportunity to deal with the emotions of the public. And Pamela, yes, I would agree that, that uh, you know, it does go beyond ourselves, uh, even beyond our families. The, the things that we do uh, can have a significant impact uh, on, uh, on a much wider radius. And Pamela, yeah, I'm, we're getting, I think, at the issue that in this day and age, in at least many of our societies, material success and fame and honor is valued. And so when someone has that, people look up to that person and they will listen to what that person has to say. So if an upright person who has righteous ideas is in that position, then they have the opportunity to positively influence the people because the people will listen to them, not initially because of their logic or the rationality of their ideas, but because they have wealth and honor and fame. And so that wealth and honor and fame essentially becomes uh, a ticket to, uh, to getting the public to listen to them. I mean, if we think about it, what, what causes the public to move on something? Uh, I'd suggest two things. Number one, their desire for an outlet for their emotions, their desires. And two, they recognize a certain greatness, which in our society is dependent on wealth and fame. And since the upright has that, then he is in a better position to have the public listen to him. So then he can counteract what the wicked are saying. Okay? And Pamela, you've asked the question, regardless of how they became successful. No, I don't think it is regardless. If a person, for example, um, you know, made their money through, uh, uh, well, uh, through, through illegal means, clearly illegal means, everybody knows it's illegal means, um, then I don't think people will look to that person, uh, you know, and say, gee, I'll listen to them. But if a person... Uh, has become successful uh, through means that are considered legitimate, 
and has wealth and, and again will add honor, not just the wealth, but honor to go with it, then I think they do have an opportunity to stand up and say, hey, you need to look at this idea, which may not on its face be a very popular idea with the public, but the credibility that they have because of their fame and their wealth and their honor does cause people to stop and listen to that idea and think, hmm, yeah, maybe I should consider that. Now, Pamela, you've mentioned quite often the wicked are successful. They can be successful in a material way, but a person in this verse is talking about the wicked person who's wanting to destroy and put people down and incite quarrels and incite strife. That kind of a situation, where you've got that kind of a person, um, then even though they may have some material success, I don't think that people, if they certainly know about the wickedness of that person, will be um, inclined to listen to them. But if you take someone that's, say, a very upright businessman who's known to operate with integrity, uh, who um, you know, has, has gained a certain amount of wealth uh, and uh, known uh, you know, around the, the country or the world uh, as you know, a prominent business person, a man of integrity, uh, has gained honor uh, through that, then they have an opportunity to counteract the thing things that uh, uh, the wicked uh, were thinking of. Um, and you mentioned, you know, you were uh, asking the question about uh, George Soros. I, I can't speak specifically because I don't have good, you know, statistics on, uh, on, on how he's viewed. Um, but uh, an example of a person that, um, that I, you know, potentially uh, you know, might have an opportunity to influence people through his, uh, through his wealth and, uh, and honor is uh, Warren Buffett. Now, there's a man that's, you know, what, second, first, second richest man in the world, depending on how you're counting these days. Uh, but, you know, a lot of people listen very carefully to what Warren Buffett says. Uh, he's gained a certain, a certain amount of honor and fame uh, and wealth. And that gives him an opportunity to raise his voice on certain matters and at least have people listen to him. Whereas uh, they might not listen to someone else uh, who is saying the same thing. Um, so uh, so that's, that's the idea here. So we've changed the subject now of the verse to what causes the public to listen to people. It seems to be what's being said. Now, interestingly, there, we, we mentioned there are two things that cause the public to move. One is their desire for an outlet for their emotions, okay, and their desires. And the second is that they recognize a certain greatness that is dependent on wealth and fame. Both of those emotions are false, and they're irrational to follow. I mean, one, the desire for an outlet, and the other, well, I'll just, you know, assume somebody's great because they have you know, wealth and fame. Um, I mean, there are a bunch of people out there that have wealth and are well-known, and, you know, you wouldn't want to listen to their ideas. So both of those emotions, those ways of getting the public to move, they're irrational, but we, we have to use those emotions to try to benefit the public themselves. So... What the, what the righteous, the upright person is saying still runs against their emotions. So we would think, well, there's still a problem there. But even though people have certain desires, they are willing to listen to someone they respect. And that appears to be the only thing that can counteract the words of the wicked, the strife and the destruction that the wicked create. People want to be successful. So when they see that the yosher, the upright person, is successful... They want that wealth and honor and fame. Now, that may not be the right motivation, but that is a motivation that they have. So they're willing to go to the Yosher to try to get that wealth and honor and fame. And when they go to get it, he'll be able to give them advice that will be of most benefit to them. Real advice, real ideas, true ideas of reality. Okay? So the verse is talking about, you know, everyday people. Now, the second explanation of the Rabbeinu Yonah 
is that the blessing refers to the prayers of the Yosher, and that through those prayers, the city is raised. Now, and we also know that the, the second half says the mouth of the wicked destroys. So the Rabbeinu Yonah, in his second explanation, explains that the Yosher raises the city with his blessings while the wicked destroys the city with his mouth. Okay? Now, we're not talking about blessings that the Yosher bestows on the city. It's talking about the blessings refers to the prayers of the Yosher. Okay? Now, there are certain comparisons that don't work. I mean, suppose you want to compare a human being to a tree. Okay? That comparison doesn't work. I mean, first you need to compare a human being to an animal, and then to a growing thing. And then you could get down to comparing a human to a tree. But when you make a comparison between one thing or another, you, you can't jump too far. It has to be, you know, fairly straight across the board. Now, in the first half, again, according to the Rabbeinu Yonah's second explanation, we're talking about praying. And there's a hope that the prayers, through those prayers, God will help you. In the second half, the evil person is destroying with his mouth. So it seems like we're jumping a step. I mean, in one part we're talking about, you know, relating to God on the one side and, and the first half, and about how a wicked person destroys on the other side. So there doesn't really seem to be a real comparison. So how are we going to resolve that? So it seems that we would have to say the subject is, when does God listen and intervene? And what the verse seems to be saying under the Rabbeinu Yonah's second explanation is that the prayers of the righteous can save the city, and the speaking of the wicked destroys it. So the righteous can cause God to relate to the city through their prayers and to help the city, and the wicked, based on his lifestyle and what he talks about and what he advises, how he speaks and how he converses, can cause other people to fail. So either they'll allow the, the wicked will allow the city to be undermined by the laws of nature, or directly because of the evil, God could intervene to do, actually destroy the city. But the prayers of the righteous could protect the city. So we see here two ways of, if you will, affecting God. You could affect God through your prayers, and that could affect the existence of the city. Or you could affect God by the way you live your life and the way you guide people, and if you do that in an evil way, that can affect how God will relate to the city also. Now that tends to beg a question, does that mean we can affect God? So what this doesn't mean is that we can affect God personally. The way that God set up the system in the physical world is such that you can cause the system to work for you. God's relationship to the world is based on a system. And that system is in the Torah. So, you know, we see in cases when God relates with kindness and goodness and when God relates with his wrath. So if you know and understand the system, you can use that system, if you will, to get God to work for you. Now, you're not really affecting God but you are affecting the system that God set up. Just like if you know the laws of nature, you can make those laws work for you. Like you can make an airplane, and it will actually fly. Now, a human being cannot, by its nature, and because of the laws of gravity and everything else, you know, standing on the ground, a human being cannot fly. But if he creates an airplane with wings and ailerons and a power source to push it through the air, and you get the Bernoulli effect on the wings, and, you know, everything lifts up, you can so, I mean, an airplane really goes against the laws of gravity, but if you know those laws, you can manipulate the system to your benefit. And the same is true with God's system. If you know the system, you can work it to your benefit. Okay, let me pause here. And Pamela, you've asked, do most people think they are quite good? Do mobs think they're doing something good? Ah, that's a very good question. Uh, I would suggest to you that most people think they are doing 
the right thing. Uh, and, and they think they are, I would suggest most think they are doing good. I mean, it's my understanding that Al Capone thought he was a benefactor to society, you know, doing good stuff. People have a great ability to be able to essentially fool themselves, as you will. Um, and uh, uh, make themselves think that they are doing good. Do mobs think they are doing something good? Uh, they are caught up in their emotion, but they're probably not aware that they're caught up in their emotion. And in that moment, they are not seeing reality clearly, but they probably think they're doing something good. Um, so yes, I think that's true. Now, how does the wicked person relate to the city? And before I answer that, Pamela, you wrote the Noahide Laws, and I'm not sure what you're referring to there. Uh, maybe you can elaborate on that point. Um, there are two ways that God harms a city or an individual. Either he intervenes directly, like with Egypt and the plagues, and the other way is that he does not protect the city. He allows it to be destroyed. And that's part of his system, when he allows an individual or a city to be destroyed within the system, and he doesn't intervene to stop it. So, what the wicked person is doing is potentially preventing God's intervention from saving the city. Now, the book of Proverbs is talking about the traits of the righteous and the wicked and how you get certain consequences. And that's what we're talking about here. The traits of the righteous bring about God's personal intervention and affects the physical world in a very beneficial manner. Okay? The, the righteous person's righteousness, his lifestyle, all that affects God's providence one way, while the nature of the wicked affects how God relates to the world in an evil way. So, getting back to your point, Pamela, does this you know, go outside of, of our family? The answer is yes. You're ta we're talking about your very lifestyle, your very personality, and the actions that it causes, and how that affects God's relationship to the physical world. Why does God listen to the righteous? Because of his lifestyle. And because the person is guided by wisdom. And the wicked's personality affects how God relates uh, to us in the opposite manner. So the verse isn't um, teaching us a new trait. It's telling us how uh, the traits affect God's personal intervention. Uh, okay. Let me pause here and make sure we don't have any, any questions. And Pamela, you're right. Uh, as Sedona, uh, he intervened directly. You're absolutely right. And I see what you're saying about the Noahide Laws, the basis of the society. Absolutely. Okay. And let me just pause because it looks like you're writing one more thing down. Okay, um, and you mentioned that's significant where so many countries uh, are threatened. Uh, yes, uh, it very much is, and uh, so it's, it's very important that the righteous, the upright, those with true ideas, get a chance, uh, we hope, to be heard and understood by by the people in the city, uh, who can hopefully affect them uh, in a positive way and bring out um, uh, God's uh, intervention uh, to help the city. So, the Rebbeinah Yonah gave two answers, two interpretations of the verse. So a question then that we could ask is, how do those two answers relate to each other and what's the subject of the verse? Uh, and the first, the first answer uh, r relates 
to how the success of the righteous person allows the advice of the righteous person to work. In other words, people will look up to him because he's prominent and will follow his advice. Uh, and, and how the, the, the righteous person and the wicked affect the decision-making of the city. The second answer is how their respective personalities affect God's personal providence on the city. So what's the relationship between the two answers? Rabbi Moscow had said that most of the time he has found that when the Rishonim, the, uh, a certain group of the sages, uh, give two answers, the two answers have a relationship and those two answers can be compared. And so what he's suggesting is there are two ways that the righteous and the wicked affect the city. One is practical. They affect how the city works and operates and whether the city will operate on the basis of righteousness or evil. And the second way they affect the city is based on how they affect God's personal providence in relation to the city. So the verse is talking about how the righteous and the wicked affect the city. And the Rebbeinu Yonah is explaining to us the two ways that can happen. One is practical, through how the righteous give advice to the city because of their wealth and honor, and how the wicked seek to destroy the city. And the other is how those two people or groups affect God's personal providence with regard to the city. Okay? Any questions on that verse or what he's trying to get across there? Okay. And I'll take no response as a as a no. Let me pause for a second. Pamela looks like you're writing something. Uh, Pamela, you said prophecy points to a dearth of leadership. I'm not sure what prophecy you're referring to because we haven't had any for quite a while in terms of bona fide Torah prophecy. Um, so I need a little more information to know what you're referring to there. Uh, end times. Okay. I understand. Well, we certainly do seem to have a, a lack of uh, clear um, rational leadership and clear logical thinking with true ideas uh, coming out. And it's a very difficult problem because uh, we had a discussion once years ago in a class uh, uh, around the question, will a true idea sell? And by sell, we weren't necessarily talking about, you know, for dollars in the marketplace, but w will people accept a, a real idea? And that's a very difficult one because oftentimes real ideas go against people's emotions. And so it be unless they are willing to, uh, to put forth the rigorous intellectual honesty to realize, hmm, this is a true idea even though I don't like it, but it's, it's real, uh, then it's, it's a problem uh, because, you know, we, we get caught up in our emotions and we like to satisfy our emotions and when someone comes along and tells us, no, the, the real answer is you need to do this. Um, if, to, to take a simple example, if, um, if I really emotionally enjoy sitting around on the couch um, eating, you know, a diet of beer and snack crackers and watching movie reruns all the time. Uh, that's not good for me. It's not good for my intellect. It's not good for my, uh, my body because I'm not getting any movement. The diet's not good for me long term. You know, a little bit of that, okay, it's not a problem. But if I did that continuously seven days a week, uh, that's a problem. Now, I'm sitting there, you know, uh, not wanting to have to exhibit any effort and someone comes along and says, look, Doug, you need to get off the couch, get out there and get some exercise, eat some healthy food uh, and do something with your life. That is not going to be emotionally a very satisfying thing for me to hear. It's true, but it's not going to be emotionally very satisfying. Um, so that is a, a difficulty. Uh, and Naomi, yes, I hear you. I hear you. An example today we see in 
in the world, in Pakistan and in other places, uh, as you pointed out, uh, it's very, very difficult. Um, I mean, even in, uh, in the United States, you know, trying to have, you know, just a good debate about an issue and for folks to stay on the issue. If you look at our political campaigns, uh, you know, they often descend into uh, kind of snowball fights uh, back and forth, not just a look, let's rigorously debate the pros and cons of a serious national issue, and yes, you may have a different opinion, but I'll respect that and let's talk about it and try to work something out. Uh, it, it becomes something very different. So uh, it's, it's very difficult. That's why the study of Michelet is so, so very important, uh, because this does teach us how to think through an idea, how to separate between, okay, what's emotions, what's my intellect, what's really going on in this situation. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I have found that to be, you know, true in my own life, in, in business. I mean, sometimes certain things will happen and, you know, I, I, as we'll discover in the next verse, I'll have this desire to maybe want to, you know, fire an email back to somebody and vent my emotions at them. And yet through this training, I've come to understand, no, wait a second, that is your emotions talking and that is not a clear view of reality and that is going to create all kinds of unintended and very messy consequences that you will have to clean up and let's not go down that road, so wait until your mind's calm and you'll be able to think through a rational way to deal with that. Uh, and I can tell you from personal experience, the results come out so much better when I listen to that uh, you know, intellectual voice, but it, it's, a, it's a certain level of training that it takes. Okay, uh, any other questions on that before we move on? Okay, let's see if we can cover one more verse. This is Proverbs 11, chapter 12. Sorry, Proverbs chapter 11, verse 12. Uh, and the verse reads, A person who insults his friend lacks heart or a mind and a man of understanding is quiet a person who insults his friend lacks heart and a man of understanding is quiet what kinds of questions can we ask about that what are the questions Man, a person who insults his friend lacks heart, and a man of understanding is quiet. Why would one want to insult a friend? Very good point. Why would a person insult his friend? Okay. And I would also add to that, what does it mean to lack heart? When it says a person who insults his friend lacks heart or lacks a mind, we tend to think of heart these days um, in terms of emotions, but when uh, it's my understanding that when this book was written, uh, when you talked about lacking heart, it meant lacking a mind. It was more on the intellectual side as opposed to the emotional side. And why is a man of understanding quiet? I mean, it's kind of an odd thing to say. You know, a, a, a person who insults his friend lacks uh, heart, and a man of understanding is quiet. Well, why is he quiet? And what is that about? And Naomi, very good, how can he lack a heart? So really what it means is he lacks a mind or he lacks a certain level of understanding. Uh, seems to be that uh, what, the, what the verse is saying. But let's dig into this a little bit. And again, we're going to uh, turn to the Rebbeinu Yonah. Uh, and he said, he says the Rebbeinu Yonah, or the Rebbeinu Yonah says that a, a person who insults his friend lacks heart because this is a testimony to his musser, and I'm going to loosely translate that as character development. I think we've talked about that word in previous classes, um, or the lack of character development. And it also testifies on the lack of his mind. 
So he, he, the guy doesn't have any musr or any, uh, according to Rabbi Moskowitz, any restraints. Musr is about restraints. Now, uh, we, we need to be a bit careful here. When the book of Proverbs talks about restraints, it is not talking about a conscience. Okay, a conscience you're born with. Restraint comes from ideas of Torah. So, on, on the part that says a man of understanding is quiet, the Rabbeinu Yonah says that it's not honorable to answer him because he'll be equal to him. In other words, if you're insulted by someone, then it's not honorable to answer back because then you'll be equal to him. And secondly, he says it's sufficient that it is known that this guy lacks understanding and that he testifies about himself that he lacks heart. In other words, lacking heart seems to have two bad traits. One bad trait is that he doesn't have any mercer, excuse me, any musser, uh, any good traits, or restraint based on understanding. And it also shows that he doesn't have understanding. He does things without understanding. So... And Pamela, you're mentioning he weighs up the situation. Speaking may not help. Good point, and we're going to get into that as we talk more about the Rebbeinu Yom. And there's obviously a gut issue going on. Let's see how that uh, how that plays itself out. So, uh, let's ask this question: If if the insulted answers the insulter, why does that make him bad? In other words, in order to answer that, we'd have to answer with, well, what's wrong with insulting altogether? And how is it that it shows these two traits, this lack of musr or restraint and a lack of knowledge? Okay. And just to clarify, when the man of understanding is quiet and doesn't answer back, he doesn't get into a fight with the guy. He just lets the insult go by. Okay, and Pamela, let me pause because it looks like you're conjuring up an answer here. Okay, yes, shaming someone in public is likened to murder. Absolutely. And so, you know, you could make an argument that that, you know, insulting someone in public uh, is bordering on that, particularly if you're embarrassing them. but this verse might even be referring to an individual situation where you're just with the friend and there's no, no public around. Well, uh, Naomi, you said deceiving is also a case of shaming. I'm not sure I fully understand there because if I, um, I can think of some cases where deceiving wouldn't be a case of shaming. For example, if I'm going to hold a surprise party for someone and I uh, trick them into thinking that I'm just taking them out to dinner, I'm deceiving them, but in this case I wouldn't be shaming them. So I'm not sure that that conclusion always follows. might be that you're thinking out about a particular kind uh, of deception. And I'll pause here because it looks like you're responding to that. Ah, okay. Thank you. Backtracking on words of promise. Yes. Okay. Now I understand. So, there are certain consequences if you tell somebody off. I mean, if you just go unload on somebody and insult them and let them have it, there are consequences to that. And there are a number of verses in Proverbs that deal with that. For example, and I think we've talked about some of these already, if you show your anger then the other guy knows to protect himself, uh, and, and so forth. But Proverbs always already talks about this in a number of places. So this verse seems to be saying something about the situation that's in this particular, uh, in this particular verse. If we go back to the man of understanding, it says that the man of understanding shouldn't answer the one who insults him, because then he'll be equal to him. 
And then he, the Rabbeinu Yonah gives a second reason. The second reason is that it's enough that the guy reveals that he lacks understanding. Well, what's the lack of understanding? He testifies about himself that he's a person without good character traits and without restraints. And he does exactly how he feels, even though it doesn't make sense. In other words, he's revealing his flawed personality, who he is. Now, a person who reveals bad traits in his own personality is a fool. I mean, if somebody's going to stand out and wave a flag that says, I'm a fool, he is a fool, because he's bragging about it. So the man of understanding says, hmm, this guy's revealing that he's a fool, that he has no good character traits, no wisdom, he doesn't know how to operate, and he's just showing what a fool he is. Because that's what you reveal when you insult another person. So he is, by the sheer fact that he's insulting another person, he is revealing what a fool he is. So we could ask, well, what's the bad trait about insulting somebody? And interestingly, the verse doesn't seem to point to why insulting someone is a bad trait. There are a number of answers. For example, it's a really ineffective way to get your point across. I mean, when you insult someone, all you do is make them mad. Uh, and so there are consequences to that. I mean, you make the other guy mad, and that just makes the argument worse, so it doesn't benefit anybody. And, and those are all true reasons. But the Rabbeinu Yonah seems to be pointing to something else. He doesn't seem to be dealing with this question of why insulting someone is a bad trait. Rather, he's interpreting the verse that the man who lacks understanding reveals that he lacks restraint and no understanding. In other words, he's revealing his personality. So then, we could ask, well, so what? I mean, what does that have to do with anything? Why, it's, why is it important that the guy is revealing his personality? In other words, what is King Solomon trying to get across to in, in this? And another interesting point is that the verse is telling the man of understanding how to react to the first guy. It's not comparing one against the other. I mean, the usual approach, as we've discussed, is you compare one side with another. But there doesn't seem to be any comparison here. He's, he's giving advice. He's saying, if someone insults you, don't answer him back. Well, if a man of understanding is being insulted, it doesn't say anything about the man of understanding. It's only reflecting the feelings of the one doing the insulting. So if you're a man of understanding and someone is insulting you, you realize, oh, wait a minute, this isn't about me. It's about him. It's about the guy doing the insulting. So therefore you shouldn't answer because what the guy doing the insulting is doing is just reflecting his own self and it's not worth answering him because this has nothing to do with me, the one being insulted. Okay? So that's a, that's a clear and true idea. And that is one way we could interpret the verse. Okay? And Pamela, you're right. The fact that he is silent says a lot, as we shall see in just, just a second. But the Rabbeinu Yonah doesn't seem to be saying this. The Rabbeinu Yonah seems to be saying that the man of understanding in the verse is a regular person. He's got normal desires. So when someone insults him, he has a desire to insult back. We're not talking about someone here who has full humility, like, for example, Moses, who if you insulted him, you know, he probably wouldn't, uh, he would be completely unaffected by it. I mean, a person on that le level just isn't going to be affected by an insult. Uh, that's real humility. He doesn't have an ego that's even affected by that. But in this verse, based on what the Rabbeinu Yonah is saying, he's talking about someone who still has an ego. And if you insult him, he feels the insult. The man of understanding in this verse, the way the Rabbeinu Yonah seems to be interpreting it is, the man of understanding feels the insult. Now, there are two ways of not answering back. One is your conscience. But that in itself is just an emotion, and it 
can, could work or it could not work. You can't necessarily trust it. The other approach is to use wisdom to prevent yourself from answering. And there are two arguments you can use that will prevent you from answering. And those arguments are these. Number one, if I'm answering, I'm equal to it. You know, it doesn't, whatever's wrong with expressing your emotions, it doesn't really matter whether you instigated it or whether you express it because someone else instigated it. You're expressing your emotion and thus you've lost control and thus you're equal to him. But since I don't want to be equal to him, that idea can dissuade me from answering it. That's the first argument I can use to prevent myself from answering the guy. The second one is, when I want to insult someone, what do I want to accomplish? Well, I want to put him down. But, I can reason through in my mind, the person is already put down, because he's already revealed that he's a fool, because he insulted me. So, he's already put down, there's nothing more for me to do. So I can use those two ways as ideas to teach myself or prevent myself from answering the guy. Now, what we have to understand is, you know, the, in this case, the man of understanding does have a desire to hit back. I mean, most of us, when we're insulted, we have a desire to hit back. And what we're not trying to do is make uh, a person feel guilty about that. What you have to do is be aware of it and figure out what it is that you want to accomplish. What do I want to accomplish? I want to hit the guy back, verbally. You know, I want to make a fool of the guy. I want to insult him. I want to show that there's something wrong with him. Oh, but wait. I've already done that in my own mind by expressing, by recognizing that that's exactly what he did. And that there's nothing more that I need to do. So it's a certain level of understanding that recognizing that what I want in order to get back at him is essentially what he's already done to himself. And it's not just that I think through this idea that happens. I have to go over and over this idea until it's the idea that stops me, not my conscience. Okay, operating from my conscience is not the man of understanding in this verse. It's the understanding that stops you from carrying out the act. That's what the verse is getting at. So again, when you're insulted, you feel bad, you want to hurt the other guy, you want him to know that you think he's a fool. And if you don't say anything, well, that approach isn't very emotionally satisfying because I'd really like to, you know, verbally smack him in the mouth. But all you have is the aspect of knowing he's a fool, but you don't get that aspect of putting him down. And so what do you do about that? The Rebbeinu Yonah is giving two arguments. One is uh, that I, uh, if, if I insult him, I'm equal to him. Okay. And yes, I don't get an outlet for my vengeance. But otherwise, if I do, if I verbalize it, then I'm not a person of understanding, I'm not a person of restraint, I don't have good traits. So I use that knowledge to stop myself. The second way is that um, there's something not quite equal to what you get when you put them down, but at least I get the realization that the guy who did the insulting actually insulted himself. So the first part answer keeps restrains me from hurting the guy, the other guy, the insulter. And the second answer gives me at least some satisfaction that I know the guy's a fool, even if I don't come out and tell him. Okay? All right. Let me pause there. And Pamela, you've asked the question, how do you prevent the red mist? I do not know what the red mist is. Uh, that's not a term that I... I'm familiar with. Can you elaborate on that? Anger. Ah, okay. So how do you prevent anger? So the way that you prevent anger is that you begin to recognize 
what's going on within you when you get angry. Generally speaking, I would suggest that people get angry because the world didn't go the way they wanted it to. Whatever it may be. Guy pulled in front of me on the highway when I didn't want him to. I had to stand in a long line when I didn't want to. My plane was late when I didn't want it to. I expected something to arrive today and it didn't show up. I wanted somebody to say something nice to me and they didn't. I am basically angry because reality didn't go the way I wanted. And the first step is awareness. That that is what is going on. And so, I mean, if you're in the middle of, of a, an anger fit, uh, then if you recognize you're in it and you can't, you know, reason yourself out of it, then just accept, okay, I'm in anger right now, and what I'm going to do to protect myself is I'm going to make sure I don't go interact with anybody. I'm going to go off maybe and be by myself until I can work it through, until I can calm down, because when I'm angry, I'm generally out of control, and I don't want to go do stuff when I'm out of control, because that's reckless. I mean, it would be like uh, being drunk and climbing behind the wheel of a car. Uh, I mean, the, the really smart thing to do if you could do it is to recognize, you know what, I'm drunk, so I'm going to go park myself in a corner here in a chair until I sober up, and I'm not going to go do anything, because whatever I do is probably going to get me in trouble. So that's the, first, uh, that's the first step, is to recognize it, uh, and, uh, uh, and then you can begin to analyze and ask, hmm, okay, what's going on here? Why am I angry? Well, I'm angry because I wanted these people to do this, and uh, they didn't. And okay, is there anything I can practically do about it? And what is my big resistance to the fact that the world doesn't always work the way I want? Because, let's face it, it doesn't. You know, none of us gets everything we want when we want it, uh, the way we want it. And so, uh, working through and recognizing where it is that I am resisting reality uh, is, I believe, the first step. Okay, Pamela, am I answering your question? Yes, indeed. Okay, good. Now, let's see. Uh, we're, we're at the top of the hour, but let me cover just a couple more points so we can wrap up this verse. The purpose of Proverbs is to help you reach a certain level of perfection. And the first step is to be a wise person. So, uh, you, you kind of have two choices in the case of of uh, being insulted. Either your conscience is going to stop you or your wisdom is going to stop you. Either way, you may not have full humility yet. I mean, when you get full humility, you know, the insult won't even affect you. But most human beings are affected when they're insulted. <clears throat> so you can either control that through guilt or through some idea. And as we've discussed, you cannot skip steps. You have to live in accordance with who you are now. You can't live like a saint if you're not a saint. Saints are wrong. I shouldn't use that term. That's, that's, uh, let me just say, you, you can't live like a totally humble person if you're not a totally humble person. You can't pretend. You have to be realistic about what's really going on for you uh, in a situation like this. I mean, if you are insulted and you feel insulted, uh, in my view, it's not very productive to pretend that you're not. Uh, it's much better to acknowledge, yes, I feel insulted, um, and, uh, and move on from there, uh, and then take whatever action or the lack of action that is appropriate. Part of the problem is that people sometimes want to see themselves on a very high level, and that's a very big error. If you look at yourself like you have no ego, and you say, well, I'm not going to answer back because that's not the right thing to do, first of all, that doesn't work. And second, you're putting yourself on a level that you're not actually on. You have to work from the level that you're on. You have to be realistic with yourself. The person in this verse, as I understand it from the Rebani Yonah, is a person who is insulted. He feels insulted. And he needs wisdom to stop him, not his conscience. Okay? 
So we're talking about a case where the wisdom itself stops you from answering. Um, and you have to understand that, okay, this is who I am. Um, and I, yeah, I could prevent myself from insulting the guy based on my conscience. And yeah, I can get that to stop me. But that's not what the book of Mishlei is about. That's not Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is about being guided by wisdom. And so you have to know what uh, and who you are. So the, the verse isn't telling us what's wrong with giving an answer back. That's beyond this verse. It's accepting the premise that there is something wrong with answering back. And what the verse is doing is helping a person of understanding in how to deal with his or her own emotions. That's what it's teaching us. So in summary, the verse, the opposites are that we have two sides to a person. The comparison isn't between the person who insults and the person being insulted. The comparison is about how to deal with a situation where someone insults you. And there are two ways of dealing with it. One is you allow your emotions freedom and you just insult back. Or the other is that you prevent your emotions from having an outlet through wisdom. It's the same kind of opposite as uh, like a shadow. A shadow uh, is when you stop the light from coming through. And the same here, you're stopping the insult that you want to make back to the guy from coming through, and what's stopping you is the wisdom of seeing these ideas. Okay, any questions on this verse? <laughs> ah, Pamela, I hear you. I hear you. We learn restraint from lots of things. And we learn acceptance, too, uh, from a lot of things. I mean, we really can take out huge amounts of stress in our lives by learning to accept reality. Uh, you know, I, I sometimes have to fly in, uh, in business. And... When you get to the airport and you're in line for the ticket or you're in line at the gate and they announce that the flight is going to be 20 minutes late, it's, it's very interesting sometimes to watch the reactions of people. Because some people, you know, will get very emotionally upset over the fact that their flight is going to be late. Now a flight, whether it goes out on time, is uh, the result of so many factors outside of your control. I mean, there could be mechanical issues, there could be weather issues, maybe there are weather issues at the destination, uh, maybe computer problems, all kinds of things. But people will get very, very bent out of shape and upset about that, as opposed to simply accepting, okay, the plane is going to be late. I mean, there's nothing that those people in the gate generally can do about it unless they want to decide to go book themselves on another flight, and that's just a practical step. But the emotion of getting so upset about it is such a waste of energy because it doesn't do them any good at all. It's very counterproductive. And to the degree that we can learn to accept reality and work with that, we can eliminate huge amounts of stress uh, from our lives and have a, have a much more peaceful life. Okay, any other questions or comments? Yes, Naomi, I think you're right. They do, people do put too much hope on the system. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I have said to people before, you know, when you walk through the front doors of the airport, and many other things are like this in life, you're at the, fa at the um, uh, under the constraint of so many factors outside of your control that you might as well just flow with whatever goes because... You don't control most of that stuff anyway, uh, and there's no point in wasting energy over it. Uh, so it's very true. And yes, Pamela, life is a good teacher. Uh, and that resistance to reality is one of those things that can really, really take a lot out of us. Naomi, I'm not sure I understand your last comment. Uh, can you maybe elaborate on that when you say there's uh, always no hope? 
Or is that perhaps what you're intending is to say, if you don't have expectations, then anything that shows up is a positive? Ah, I see. Yep, never complain if the train or bus is late. It's true. It's very true. It's a good point. You know, because the reality is, it is late. So, what's there to complain about? That's what we, that's what we get. And then it's just a question of practicality. Uh, yeah, and having the bus itself is a great thing. I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful thing. Uh, Pamela, thank you very much. Great to have you with us. Uh, very good, Naomi. Very good. I hope you are all doing well and headed out for a very good week. And uh, we'll plan on uh, joining together then next week. So thank you very, very much.